Hello and welcome back to the ESDF podcast. This is our second podcast of the new series. My name is Chris Darwin. I'm the editor-in-chief at FMG, which includes ESDF, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by our lead analyst, Lee Scott. Hello, Lee. Hi, Chris. How are you? Very well, thank you. It looks like the uh, the first podcast down went down well enough that we've been invited back to, ha- to have another go, so we'll take that as a positive, shall we? It's a rolling contract. Exactly, exactly. So what we're going to be looking at today, folks, is to give you an idea of the subject matters we're going to be touching on. We're going to be looking at Liverpool, the front three and how they are working. We're going to have a chat about Paolo Fonseca and Shakhtar Donetsk's tactical setup. We're going to be looking at Piotr Zielinski, the Napoli player. Player, as well as finishing off with Juventus and their recruitment strategy. So hopefully plenty of things for you to look forward to there. So Lee, Liverpool have come a long way under Jurgen Klopp since he, uh, since he replaced uh, Brendan Rodgers at Liverpool. How do you feel their front three can be properly explained? Because we hear lots of things about, well, it was the Fab Four when Coutinho was there and obviously they're now down to three. And there's a lot of lazy conversation around how they just rotate and and all that sort of stuff. But please do explain to us a little bit more about how Liverpool's front three really works in in the game. Well, it's quite complicated, to be honest. I think that the way that their front three are working at the moment, I think they've, they've been really almost completed by the signing of Mohamed Salah in the summer. I don't think anybody, even the most ardent Liverpool supporter, would have expected him to come into the club and to have the, the, the impact that he has in terms of goal scoring. Um, obviously, at the moment, he, he seems like he can do no wrong. But for a, a short period of time at the start of the season, it almost felt as though Salah's introduction had marginalised Sadio Mane. I think now in the second half, I think they've kind of found their balance a little bit more. Where Salah plays predominantly from obviously the right-hand side or the left-hand side and Salah and Mane can switch over but they, they react they act differently when they do so Salah is more likely to come inside and play into the half spaces and the half spaces it, it's not really so much a technical term as it maybe was a couple of years ago I think it's quite widely understood now but if you imagine a football pitch split up into five vertical corridors so basically five sections of the football pitch running from one goal to the other. The half space is the space between the wide area and the, the central strip on that, that imaginary diagram, if you like. These are the areas that, that inside forwards, that, that central midfielders that push forward from from the, the midfield, these are the areas that these kind of players tend to try to take up. So with Salah, he will, he will try to attack into the, the half spaces more than he will to stay out in the wide areas. Mane, on the other hand, we we saw a lot last season when Mane was one of the one of Liverpool's best players. I would say last season, he played a lot from the right hand side, and he would do the same. He would attack down the right hand half space, but he would also come into the central areas. So I think with Roberto Firmino as the the central striker, and with those two almost wide forwards coming inside, I think that Liverpool have the the options to overload any area of the of the final third that they wish to. I think they use this very intelligently with Roberto Firmino's movement and with the the pace and the ability to make vertical diagonal runs from Mane and from Salah. I think that these these are the mechanisms that they're using at the moment just to break through all the defences they're coming up against. It's it's got to be fair to say then that the whole system, although Mane and certainly Salah are getting the the real headlines at the moment, it's it's probably fair to say that the whole system would break down if it wasn't for the intelligence of Firmino's sort of uh, movements and and the role that he plays. Because without him moving to create the space for for Salah to to sprint into and to Mane to arrive into, then the the whole thing doesn't work. Yeah, I, I would say that that's exactly true. I think that Firmino is, is one of the most underrated players. I think in European football, still, um, when when he was at Hoffenheim before he signed for Liverpool, he was extremely effective coming from deeper areas and joining the attack. At Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp has kind of converted him more into a focal point, but that focal point can can move he has no fixed position he's not a striker like uh, Romelu Lukaku for example who who plays in the width of the penalty area and very very rarely goes either out wide or drops deep to collect the ball Firmino can can pop up at any point in the pitch but when he does whatever he does actually 
take up position when they're in the attacking phase. He becomes the reference point for the attack. and He becomes the player that the ball gets fed into and then the rest of the Liverpool players work around that. Okay, now would you then agree that the Liverpool attack looks more balanced since the departure of Philip Coutinho? I think you've got an argument for that. I don't... I think the difficult part, for all that, I mean, Philip Coutinho was, a, was and still is an absolutely fantastic player. And I think that Liverpool and Liverpool fans had a kind of special connection to the player, which always, I think, clouds judgments when a, when a player leaves a club or when, when a player is disgusted. There's a lot of strong feelings that surround him in that manner. But I think the difficulty that Liverpool had is that they had no way to fit him into his ideal position. And... They really, you still now to this day don't know what Coutinho's best position is. I would argue that he he is best suited to play in the number ten role, which isn't something that Liverpool use in the four three three. Now, coincidentally, that's not something that Barcelona use either. So it remains to be seen exactly exactly how they'll use him. But I think that Liverpool would either try to shoehorn Coutinho into the left hand central midfield slot, or they would push him out to the left wing. And the left wing, he's, he's extremely capable and he's he influences games, but he doesn't have the same threat that Mane or Salah do when they when you talk about burst of acceleration and, and quick movements and quick twitch, you know, attack and play in the final third. He doesn't have that. He prefers more time on the ball to create and to dribble and to, to beat a man with a piece of skill rather than through sheer dy- dynamism. And then if you if you drop him into the centre midfield, then again you're losing something else in the defensive phase. Then so, I, I do think that the Liverpool squad now is more balanced. The Liverpool first team certainly is. So with their front three being so vital to not just their their chase for what's probably going to be second place in the Premier League, but also the, the European campaign. What happens to Liverpool if any of those three do pick up a short-term or even a medium-term injury between now and the end of the season? What, what's their backup like? I don't think they have one um, at the moment, certainly. If, for example, Roberto Firmino goes out, then, then who's the backup coming in for Liverpool? Dominic Solanke is extremely promising, um, very raw, but he doesn't have the same skill set as Firmino. And that, that's where it becomes very difficult. For the Liverpool system to function, I think it's no secret that Jurgen Klopp has largely built their attacking game plan around Roberto Firmino and his capacity for movement and for for tactical intelligence. It's very difficult to find a player like that. It's very difficult. I mean, there are some skill sets that you can replicate. You can replicate pace, you can replicate movement, but you can't replicate a player's innate ability to drift into areas of the pitch where he could be most dangerous that's when it becomes more difficult when you're talking about a recruitment policy. How do you recruit a player like Roberto Firmino when his skill set is relatively unique? That's when that's when Liverpool are going to strike a problem and that's when you'll hear the journalists and you'll hear people on TV talk about Liverpool's plan B. I think that's when it becomes important that there is a, a secondary option and at the moment you don't really see that with Liverpool. It was the same last season, if you remember, when Sadio Mane left for uh, the African Cup of Nations halfway through the season and all of a sudden Liverpool started their attack suddenly didn't look quite as potent as it had with Mane and I think the same could be said now if they lose Mane, Salah or Firmino at any point then there's going to be a huge struggle to to try to replace that, to try to get the same output from another player. So you, you've touched on then sort of the, the recruitment side of it. Are there any players out there in, in world football now that you look at and go, that could be a good fit for Liverpool come the summer or come come the following January? I think the, the issue with Liverpool's recruitment at the first team level anyway, I think that Jurgen Klopp has previously under Brendan Rodgers, for example, we used to talk about the transfer committee when it came to Liverpool and that was... You know, um, decisions were made but via group think tank. Basically, they would decide on a majority basis whether they were going to pursue a player or not. But with Jurgen Klopp, I think it's more and more apparent that he has his list of what he would call his his first target, and he doesn't compromise. He will he will wait for that target to come free. So we've we've seen the pursuit and eventual success for Virgil van Dijk and Naby Keita, both um, obviously van Dijk's already at Liverpool, Keita will join at the end of this season and they were very much Klopp first choice options I think with the attack it's slightly more difficult, I don't know 
if you look at the the prices that are played that are paid in the transfer market now and where Liverpool are on a relative scale to the likes of Barcelona, Real Madrid, even Manchester City, Manchester United, in terms of their ability to spend and their willingness to spend, I think that you're going to have to see Liverpool look to to almost identify targets early before they before they really explode in terms of performance, and that's when it gets a little bit more tricky. If you look at Sadio Mane, for example, they signed him from Liverpool from Southampton. But if they'd taken a step back and they they scouted and identified his talent previously, they could have gotten from a fraction of the price from Red Bull Salzburg, when obviously Southampton were paying attention to Austrian league and to his output in that team. I think that's the key. I think the key is for Liverpool to start taking a step back and trying to identify these players before they, they really hit the big time. And then I presume, naturally, that that's what they're trying to do with the likes of Dominic Solanke, that they've seen raw potential there at a, at a good price, and they're then hoping that the, the coaching at Liverpool will then bring him on to be that player in two, maybe three years' time. Yeah, exactly. And you, you can touch upon the likes of Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain as well. There, there's a player who who was extremely highly rated maybe one or two years ago and has fallen off a lot bit while he was at Arsenal, but his performances have certainly picked up while, he was be, while he's been at Liverpool under Klopp. So I think at the beginning of the season, this season especially, there was a lot of talk in the media and a lot of people were questioning Jurgen Klopp as to who he was going to sign to improve his squad. And throughout his time at Liverpool, he's always been adamant that you don't only have to go out and recruit players to improve your squad, you should also be looking to improve the players that you already have. And I think that's one of his strengths as a coach. Well, the future certainly looks a lot brighter for Liverpool at the moment than it has done for, for, for many years. So so hopefully for the Liverpool fans' perspective, they're going to see a, a good end to their season. Lee, we're going we're gonna to move on to the next section now. We're going to have a quick chat about pa- Paolo Fonseca and Shakhtar the next tactical setup. So Lee, tell us a little bit more then about uh, about Paolo Fonseca and Shakhtar Donetsk. I think <clears throat> Fonseca, it's almost become, you know, you get that regular accusation via social media that if you talk about Shakhtar Donetsk and Paolo Fonseca, you're, you're attempting to be hipster. <laughs> uh, I, I do, I'm a full confession, I do have a beard, but I certainly don't, you know, associate myself as being a hipster. Um, Shakhtar are traditionally over the last decade or so Shakhtar have been one of the mainstays in European competition um, They've, if you look at the list of players that have come through Shakhtar and gone on to other clubs in European football the likes of Willian at Chelsea the likes of um, Douglas Costa who's now obviously via Bayern Munich he's now at Juventus um, Fernandinho at Manchester City the list goes on and on of the players that they've come through and not only South Americans they've, they've obviously had other nationalities come through and do the same thing so they're an interesting model of a club um, over the last two years the, the situation in Donetsk has, has, with the, the ongoing conflict with Russian or pro-Russian agents has led to Shakhtar having to move from their home they're no longer playing out of Donetsk they're playing out of Lviv or Odessa um, in the, the Ukrainian-held part of the country. So the, there has been a lot of upheaval for the club in the last couple of years. And the same can be said of, of coaches with the long-serving Lucescu, the Romanian coach that was there for, for a long, long time and built a series of different squads and was very impressive in doing so. When he finally stepped down, now the club have turned to, to Fonseca. Fonseca was initially, I mean, he spent time in Portugal, obviously as a Portuguese coach. He he was coach of Porto for a short time, but for one reason or another, that didn't work out for him. He's been far more successful with smaller clubs before he moved on to, to take the Shakhtar job after a spell at Sporting Braga. Um, what we've seen this season in particular, and at the tail end of last season, I think it was this season when, when we saw Shakhtar draw with Manchester City and Napoli in the group stage, Largely, you would have expected them to struggle and to not come through the group, but for them to not only finish second and qualify for the knockout stages at the expense of Napoli, but 
it was more the more than just the performance. It was the manner of the performance against these clubs. They didn't sit back against Manchester City. They're, they're one of the few teams this season who caused Manchester City problems and were able to to push Manchester City back on the back foot, which is no mean feat. Well, it's interesting that you touch on that because as soon as you sort of bring up the fact that they, they got good results against uh, City and Napoli, immediately I'm thinking, well, they must have done something pretty special defensively. But then you could argue that taking it to the game to them on the front foot was actually a form of setting up defensively as well. So how, how do they operate in the defensive phase? They're quite interesting defensively, largely in European football this season. I think a lot of clubs are trying to follow the same model of, of Liverpool or Manchester City or Napoli, where they, they look to press from the front, they, they look to close their opponent down early to win the ball back, and to give themselves opportunities to create goal-scoring chances as quickly as possible. Shakhtar are more of a throwback in the way that they defend. They, they, they drop back, so... If you the the tactical structure that they play in is if you were to map it out on a field it'd be four two three one, um four a line of four defenders who will sit passively and block they they don't press out the full backs will tuck in and keep it tight, the two midfielders that sit in front are the key to the defensive structure, they they don't press but they do move across the pitch left and right horizontally they're excellent at cutting off passing lanes, when when a team's attacking you, they they tend to have obviously they have they have two ways that a team can attack. You can either attack through the middle or through the wide areas. <clears throat> those are really the only two. As in terms of football coaching or, or football, those are the two that we we teach. Shakhtar don't let people attack down the centre. The the centre midfielders usually Freddy, who's the the Brazilian midfielder who Manchester City were obviously heavily linked with in January. And one of two or three others that come into the team is a couple of Brazilians and Ukrainians. Stepanenko is one of them. Um, they are excellent at moving across and cutting out these passing lanes to prevent the opposition from passing through. The the rest of the team, the lone striker, Freya, who's the Argentinian striker, he was the one that was on loan at Newcastle but never got a, a kick at St James Park. He's more passive. He's not the kind of striker that you're going to have closing down opponents left, right and centre. The, the three just behind him, usually Bernard, the Brazilian, on the left-hand side, Tyson, another Brazilian, in the central area, and there's another Brazilian whose name has momentarily escaped me, Marlos, that's him, Marlos, on the right-hand side. Three Brazilian attacking midfielders, full of flair and attacking attacking threat. They don't press high, they, they tend to drop back in, and they will work back to an extent, but they they also look like to kind of stay up the field and stay free. So it's quite an interesting defensive setup the way that they work it. And then when they sort of go through the transition from defensive to attacking, is there anything interesting in their style there? I think that's where Shakhtar's strength is, and that's that's what certainly what we've seen so far this season. They they tend to attack right across the width of the field. They're excellent if you Ferreira is the obviously the focal point. He's a lone striker. He's more of a target man. He's not extremely mobile, but he is excellent when the ball is in the box bits behind him that really we see the effectiveness of Shakhtar. So the wide forwards, Bernard and Marlos, they will tuck inside when they're attacking, either into the half space, as we discussed earlier on, or right into the central areas. They'll look to crowd that area of the field, and in doing so, as soon as your wide forwards move in in that manner, you force the opposition to make a choice. The opposition defence has to either stay in their, their, their shape, so have their full-backs cover the wide areas, but if you allow them to do that, then the, the opposition's inside forwards obviously have space to operate in the central areas. So usually you'll see the full-backs tuck in and follow those runners into the central areas or in the half spaces. As soon as they do that, they, they empty space at either side of the field, and this is where the Shakhtar full-backs attack. On the left-hand side, especially Ismaili, another Brazilian, He's excellent at getting up and down that left-hand side. And when fit, Dario Serna, the obviously extremely experienced Croatian international and Shakhtar captain, he plays in the right-hand full-back position for Shakhtar. And he's excellent at getting up the field. He's not quite as athletic as he once was, given his advancing age, but he is still intelligent with his use of the ball. When they do that, they effectively have a line of five in the attacking third. But that's not where it ends for Shakhtar they, they also the two central midfielders that we talked about earlier on as well as shielding the defence they also provide a platform for the attack so you'll see them sit 
given the attack depth, so as the ball's attacking up the right-hand side, the left-hand side, or the centre, the two centre midfielders are sitting back probably about 10, 15 yards back from the ball, and all they're looking to do is provide angles for their, their teammates. So if the ball has to be recycled back, there's always a midfield player there who the ball can be played through and played out to the opposite side or played through a different passing lane. So they they almost suffocate their opponents with the way they attack, with lots of sharp passing, lots of sharp movement, little touches in and around the box. And obviously with three Brazilians attacking up from the attacking midfield slots, you can imagine the kind of creativity and flair that they can have. So although, as you say, that defensively they they sound like a bit more of a throwback and they and they're not following the modern trend at the moment. When when you talk about their attacking play, and I have to admit I've not seen a great deal of Shakhtar play, so so I'm learning as, as you speak. It does sound like they're they're quite pep like in their philosophy with with getting five very advanced players across the across the attacking line. Is, are there similarities in in their style when they get into that attacking zone? You could certainly say so. Uh, at least in terms of the positioning and the spacing of the players, I think that uh, spacing is something that is almost, it's, it's not quite discussed as much as I think it will be in the next year or two when you talk about attacking transitions for the team. Um, you hear the word spacing, you think basketball and the way that they space the floor, basketball players will, will make sure they, they each have zones of the floor in which they're able to, to occupy that stretch the, the opposition. And it's the same with teams like Shakhtar and with Manchester City when they attack. They have players who will quickly overload a zone then come back out of it, dragging defensive players out with them and creating space for other players. So I think there is an element of that in, in both the the attacking game plan of Shakhtar and of Manchester City. I think that Shakhtar, to a large degree, beyond the, the instruction for the wide players to come inside to create the overloads within the width of the penalty area and the, the full-backs to support that, I think a large portion of these teams, when they when you talk about the way that they attack in the final third, I think there's, a, there's an element of freedom to it, where as long as the team are setting up defensively the way the coaches ask them to, once they cross it in that final third, I think they, I think it's important that these players are allowed to be creative and allowed a certain freedom of movement rather than being, you know, prescribed to the extent that Louis Van Hal had his Manchester United team, where the the forwards were told precisely where they had to position themselves each time they attacked. Um, I think that's a kind of, as you say, it's kind of the the modern style and it is certainly Pep-like from Fonseca. Now, Fonseca's obviously one of these guys who's going to get linked to, to bigger jobs and that's not being dis- disrespectful to Shakhtar Donetsk but there are bigger leagues uh, out there in Europe. Do you think his style is going to easily move into a bigger league and where could you see him ending up? Not necessarily a club but what sort of league do you think he'd, uh, he'd fit into quite easily from here? Well he was already strongly linked to Everton um, before they, they obviously appointed Sam Allardyce. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that Everton was ever a realistic op- option for Fonseca given that Shakhtar were in the Champions League and were doing well. I think that proving himself on a European stage was important to him and to an extent now you could almost argue that he's done that. They certainly don't expect Shakhtar to get much further in the competition even though they've got a 2-1 lead over Roma going into the second leg of the last 16 tie. I think Fonseca's style is, is quite transferable. I don't think I can see him in Germany where Sometimes you get Latin coaches, especially they, they struggle a little bit more when they when they come into a league like Germany. I think Pep was probably the the exception to the rule, but certainly um, a league like France, if if um, PSG or Monaco, for example, are looking for a new coach, that could be an interesting option for Fonseca. Spain, certainly Spain, um, but you you kind of struggle to see where that adequate sized job is going to come up. In the, the near future, obviously, there, there's a lot of talk surrounding Zinedine Zidane at the moment, but I certainly can't see Real Madrid making a move for Fonseca. I don't think he's quite got that profile yet. So it could be if, if they make a move for a domestic coach and the dominoes start to fall, we might see Shakhtar lose their coach then. But, but certainly he'll definitely have options coming up this summer, I think. And traditionally, of course, Shakhtar have recruited mainly from, from South South America. So do, do you think that's going to continue as uh, as time goes on? And that was something that was happening before Fonseca, so you could assume that it's going to happen after. I think they would like to. <clears throat> I think the problem that they have at the moment is that the Ukraine is is much more of a 
uh, not so much dangerous, but the conflict has made life in Ukraine uncertain. Mm. I mean, when when Shakhtar and Donetsk, they they had apartment blocks that were all basically for their Brazilian players. They they had Brazilian restaurants nearby. Brazilian food was imported into the, the supermarkets, things like that, to to kind of make these players feel at home. I mean, the the ex coach Luchescu, he was Romanian, but he learned Portuguese so that he was able to able to converse mm. with these Brazilian players when he took them across and explain what he wanted them to do. So I think everything around the, the club was kind of built towards that end goal of of marrying Ukrainian talent and Brazilian talent and kind of seeing what the outcome was. I think now, though, the money's not necessarily enough to make a lot of Brazilian players make the move, given given the political uncertainty in Ukraine at the moment. I think that does have an, an impact, and it is important that we recognise that. I think that going forward, once there's more stability in the region, I think they'll go back to shopping in, in Brazil and in Argentina. More in Brazil, though. But for the meantime, I think we might start to see them turn to the academy a little bit more and look to promote a few more young Ukrainian players. Really, they only have one one contender for a domestic title. That's Dynamo Kiev. So there's certainly a little bit of room for them to allow young players to come in and develop there. So we're going to move now from Ukraine over to Naples. So Lee, we're, we're going to have to be careful that Napoli doesn't become a, a regular topic on, on the uh, podcast, it being two weeks in a row now. But we're going to talk a little bit about one of the players that we didn't really touch on last week, Piotr Zielinski. What what kind of player is he? Zielinski is a, a very exciting player. He's a, <clears throat> essentially, I suppose you would call him a central midfielder, but it's very difficult to really pinpoint his role within that. And the Napoli system, we obviously spoke about it last week, and like you said, we have to be careful because we don't want to turn this into a Napoli podcast, even though I'd probably love to because I can't get enough of watching Sarri and Napoli this season. But Zelensky in the Napoli system, he can fulfil a number of roles, either as the direct replacement for Marek Hamzik, who plays in the left-hand side of the central midfield for Napoli and links into Lorenzo Insigne on the left-hand side and Doris Martins. He's, he's more of the attacking midfielder, I suppose you could say, and Zielinski can play in that area. But he's also capable of playing on the opposite side, uh, where Alan, the Brazilian, he, he's kind of made that position his own this season, but Zielinski can certainly step in there. He's very good as a link player, as a player who who kind of does the, the hard work round about the, the right-hand side of the field, where... Their, their structure is very different with Calion on the right and Insigne on the left. They're very different players, so kind of the responsibilities that central midfielders have at either side of the pitch vary. Um, he's certainly a very good dribbler on the ball. He's very press-resistant. It's difficult to get the ball from him when he's in possession. He's got good close control, good dribbling, good awareness. He's also got an eye for goal, so he's in many ways he's the, the perfect modern midfielder. It's just a case for him now of looking to gain first team minutes and take that next step. Well, he's, he's been referred to by a few people as the next De Bruyne, which would suggest that Manchester United isn't isn't a future destination for him. But where, where do you see his career going once he starts to get those those minutes? Well, the, the, the next De Bruyne actually came from Sarri himself, from the Napoli coach. He, he came out just last week and, and likened his skill set to that of De Bruyne. I think... I don't think we're going to see him leave Napoli in the next year. I think while Sarri is there, I think that Zielinski will stay. Marek Hamzik and Alan are, are both more experienced players, so they're players who are going to struggle as next season comes around especially. They will start to struggle a little bit with the, the Napoli system, and it may well be a case that they're, they're rotated more with a player like Zielinski. He's also an excellent backup in terms of, you know, in case there are injuries in the, the in the centre midfield. But he's got an enormous amount of respect for Sarri. Sarri coached him for a period of time. Before Na- before Napoli came in for Sarri, Sarri was the coach of Empoli, um, a club from Tuscany, just just north of Florence, um, quite a small club. They were in Serie A at the time, and Zielinski was playing at Napoli when Sarri was there. And that's kind of where he really came to, came to the fore 
and you saw his, his ability to play, playing in the midfield diamond for Empoli. But Zielinski was one of the key players, along with Paredes, the Argentinian, who's now gone from Roma to Zenit. The two of them in the same team played some excellent football. And I think from that point on, Zielinski's kind of always been linked to Sarri. He's, he's somebody who has a lot of respect for the coach and he knows that the coach will give him opportunities when he can. So I think that next year we should see him take a step up in terms of his first team experience. And, and from then, I think the next step will be the interesting one, whether he then stays and replaces Hamzik full-time at Napoli or he moves on to another club. What What's your gut feeling? Do you feel that the the opportunity to, to become the next Hamzik and become a club legend in a club that... I mean, when you, th- I mean, we're go- we're going to play the age card here again, Lee. But as soon as I think of Napoli, no matter what, I think of Maradona trotting out in the late eighties with Mars on it on his chest. So Napoli yeah. is a club that will always need that idol, that that sort of player that they can go. That is Napoli today, and obviously currently it's Hamzik. Do you think Zielinski is of that ilk? I think he could be. Um, I-, I think there's definitely that's definitely an option. The only thing that may come into the way of that is it depends what happens with Sari. De Laurentiis, the, the Napoli owner, is quite a character, as a lot of Italian owners are. Um, there's no guarantee that he's going to choose to back Sari in the transfer market over the next year or two, which is what the coach will be looking for. If they can win the Scudetto this season, De Laurentiis will be delighted, but there's no guarantee that he will end up to make that a regular occurrence rather than he'll just live off the the fame, if you like, of winning at once and be happy to recycle the squad and keep them challenging for the top four, and that won't be enough for Sarri. I think if Sarri leaves, Zielinski will certainly leave. I think the other issue that you'll have is that there will be certain clubs, I mean, we spoke about Liverpool and their recruitment earlier on. Liverpool are a club who've been linked heavily in the past to Zielinski. I think that to an extent as the player it'll be interesting to see whether he's willing to turn down the kind of wages that you could get in English football he definitely fit very well I mean if you look at the the skill set that uh, Christian Eriksen has at Spurs that there's something similar in Zielinski Zielinski's arguably more dynamic and maybe a little bit more effective with his final ball at the moment there are areas that he still has to work on but it's that kind of mould of player that you're looking at so a team like Spurs like Liverpool, that kind of calibre of club, if they were to make a serious move for Zelensky, I'm not entirely sure whether he would be able to turn it down. I think that's something that will become more apparent in the summer. No, I think that's completely fair. And Napoli have been criticised for their recruitment strategy recently. And as you say, that comes from the slightly erratic nature of De Laurenti. So is, is Zelensky, was he just luck or an exception to the rule or what? I think... Zielinski was down to Sarri. It's quite interesting when you look at the Napoli team and you see the amount of ex-Empoli players that are there. He's as the, the right-back as ex-Empoli. Tonelli, the centre-back. Mario Rui, who's been playing left-back recently with Gulam injured, he's ex-Empoli. So he's very much came into Napoli and he's looked to recruit players from his old club, players that have trained under him and know his system and he he knows he can trust. So I think the fact that they picked up Zielinski so quickly after Sarri joined, I think that was more a case of the coach being adamant he wanted this player. And Zielinski, although he was starting to impress with Empoli, he was by no means expensive at that point. So it made financial sense for Napoli too. Okay, great. So we're so we're going to put Napoli to one side now, and we're going to stay in Italy. We're going to have a quick chat about Juventus and their recruitment strategy. So Lee, Juventus, and I'm going to ask you one question very quickly before we go into the recruitment side of things. As it stands today, as we record, do you think Juve are going to catch Napoli and take the Serie A title? No. Excellent. And we're probably going to mention <laughs> Italy quite a lot still between now and the end of the season. And that can yeah. become a running theme of, a theme of a question. And at the moment, I'd probably actually agree with you. So Juventus <laughs> have been uh, been praised in recent years for their recruitment strategy. But tell the listeners a little bit more about what the, that strategy has actually been. Because again, we read a lot in the papers and we see the rumours, we see actually what happens. But what really has been their strategy? I think Juventus are quite an interesting club when you talk about their recruitment. At youth level, they only recruit around Piedmont, which is their local area. Um, they they only take youngsters from from their local their locality and take them into the club and train them. So if you get a player breaking through from the youth system at, at Juventus at the early age, 
they tend to be Juventus fans who are very much ingrained in the club's philosophy. But when you look at first team recruitment, they kind of have two strands that they, they identify. They're they're very well known and they're very good at recruiting older, more more experienced players. If you look at the likes of Mario Mandzukic at Gonzalo Higuain at Blaise Matuidi this year, they're, they're taking in players who who perhaps are undervalued at their current club because of their age, whereas the Juventus, to an extent, see that age as experience and see it as a positive trait in a player, so they're more likely to overvalue that and sign these players. But combined to that, they also have their their recruitment of younger players. There, there are some, almost the exception, who will be signed and go into the first-team squad straight away. So when they signed Paolo Dybala from Palermo, I think there was no doubt he was going to go straight into the first-team squad, and he's gone on to become a key player. For the most part, when they sign young players, especially from other Italian clubs, but also from clubs abroad, they don't necessarily put them into the pathway for the first team straight away. Instead, they will take them and either loan them back to the club that they're buying them from. We've seen that with a couple of players that Juventus have taken from Atalanta recently. They've loaned them straight back to Atalanta again for them to continue their football education there with a view to become an Juventus player when they're, they're almost better developed <clears throat> or they will just loan them out so not necessarily back to the club that they're buying from the likes of Spinazzola who's now at Atalanta and Kaidara as well another defender who's at Atalanta players like this they they will spend time in Serie A they'll spend time playing against likes of Juventus and Juventus will keep a close eye on how they're developing and look to take them back to the club when it's in, when it's opportune to do so and that's that's something that's been sort of a staple diet of Italian strategy for years, isn't it? The uh, almost the bigger clubs to a certain extent. I remember back in the early days of Championship Manager, for example, where you you'd have almost like the joint ownership sort of situations. It's been it's been something that's been going on for a long time, where the larger clubs almost hoard the promising youngsters that they've got their eyes on, just on the in the hope that one of them will develop to be able to then move into the first team squad. Are Juventus doing this particularly well at the moment? Are there any recent examples of that working for them? Not especially. <clears throat> there aren't many. Uh, there aren't many examples of players coming into the first team squad because the first team squad at Juventus, the nucleus, have been together for so long now. <clears throat> for the most part, you can turn around at any point and name the the first choice Juventus eleven, and it could have been the same for the last year or two. With the odd exception, there are players. They, we mentioned Douglas uh, Douglas Costa earlier on, who was on loan at Juventus from Bayern Munich after being at Shakhtar. He's come into the squad and made an impact. Gonzalo Higuain was signed two years ago, and he's made a huge impact since he came in. But in terms of the, the younger players who they have on their books, who they have, I mean, as you say, it all goes back to the days of co-ownership, which has now been outlawed in Italy. Previously, <clears throat> teams like Juventus, like AC Milan, Inter Milan, they would be able to sign a young player and allow them to, to go back to... They, they would pay a 50% say stake in the player and they would remain at their old club. Then after a certain period of time, they would have the option to bid and buy out the rest of his contract to get him across a permanent deal. That was seen to be detrimental to Italian football as a whole, so they stopped it. But there are still clubs with which Juventus have what they term special arrangements. Clubs like Sassuolo, um, obviously now well established in Serie A after the last couple of seasons, clubs like Atalanta. So these kind of teams in, in Serie A who are rivals of Juventus also have a relationship in terms of, of player development with them. So but at the moment you look at Sassuolo and the one player that stands out that you think could potentially move into the Juventus first team and, and make an impact is Domenico Berardi, who's a, a young Italian attacking midfielder, attacking midfielder or striker. He's a player who was previously at Juventus and was allowed to go to Sassuolo with the understanding that Juventus would buy him back. They tried to, I think, two seasons ago now, and the player actually rejected the move, preparing to stay at Sassuolo and develop. 
he didn't see a future for him getting into Juventus' first team. So to an extent, I guess, you're starting to see players almost question whether it's worth them moving to Juventus at that stage of their career. I was going to bring that up, the fact that, OK, at youth level, of course, if they're, if they're in the local area and that's where they're recruiting their, their academy players, they're going to be Juventus fans and there's going to be the, the, the dream of, of pulling on the shirt. But when you move into recruiting players for, from other clubs, do, do players really believe that they're actually going to have a, a realistic chance of playing for Juventus in the first team? And would they not be better off playing elsewhere? I think better off, probably, yes. We almost have to. It's, it's difficult for people like you and I to to almost understand the psyche of a professional footballer. I don't think you become a, pressure, a professional footballer without a very high opinion of your own ability. <laughs> and to, to a large extent, these players will, will be convinced that they have the quality needed to go on and play for the event as first team. And it might not be until they're within the club system that they, they almost reevaluate that when they, they see the obstacles that are in the way into the first team and then they start to think that maybe they made the wrong step at some point but certainly clubs like Atalanta like Sassuolo like Udinese <clears throat> even like Sampdoria they are certainly changing their their methods now that the clubs at that level of time people are moving away from the the older player model that Juventus are still using and they are giving more opportunities to young players and these young players are going on to have an impact so I think that we may see over the next couple of seasons, we may see it become more difficult for Juventus to recruit at that level. Well, there's, I mean, there's two things on the horizon, really, aren't there, for, for, for Juventus? Firstly, there's the, the the whole chat in Italian football around the lack of opportunity for, for younger players, which has then obviously seen the, the huge problems the national side are having. Surely Juventus, first of all, got an element of responsibility to to really give the, the younger players the opportunity to play at the highest stage? Yes and no. I think I think it's difficult. I think out with Germany, in, in European football certainly, out with Germany, there are no major clubs in European football who feel that sense of responsibility to their national team. So, like the Juventus in Italy, Manchester City, Chelsea, Manchester United in England, they don't feel that they should be developing young English or Italian talent for the national teams. They they see it almost as a byproduct. If it happens, that's great. But for the most part, they are more concerned with their own legacy and their own success and how they operate at a club level rather than in terms of as a national feeder. If you like, I think in Germany they've got that balance right. I mean. Enough's been. Uh, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about this at some point in a future episode. But a lot's been said about German clubs at the moment and their relationship with the German Federation and the way that German clubs develop young German talent and give them the chance. I think that's that's kind of the model there. But you certainly can't say that reflects into Juventus. I, I do find that interesting though that the one of the figurehead clubs in Italy, and Italy is such a proud footballing nation where the failure to qualify for any form of international tournament does shine such a spotlight on the on the whole fiber of the of the of the country i find it fascinating that the Italians that play for Juventus, the Chiellinis, etc., the, the passion they excuse when they're when they're playing for the Italian side, that there isn't more of a more of a culture within Juventus to actually then look at bringing through the Italian players to, to feed that. Is I mean, again, we're not we're obviously not connected to this sort of side of it, so we don't understand fully. It's just something that I struggle to compute a little bit in my in my little mind around the whole sort of football Italy culture and then Juventus. It just it just doesn't add up for me. No, no, I completely agree. I think especially if you, you could take the likes of Buffon and as you said, Chiellini, this was potentially their last chance to get to a World Cup. And you saw the the emotion the outpouring of emotion after they they lost their playoff to Sweden, there was <clears throat> it, it was huge and it affected a lot of people around football, especially seeing the likes of Buffon not being able to get to that stage again. But I think it's different from the the level of a player, for example. So the likes of Buffon and Chiellini and Marchisio, Barzagli, all these players will will have immense pride in playing for their national team, but they almost have a separate identity which is that of a Juventus player and playing for Juventus is almost not quite, I, I wouldn't I'm Scottish so obviously my, my level of patriotism is through the roof and I'm a proud Scotsman so for me it would be more of a, a pool to play for your national team 
but for these players playing at an institution like Juventus, given the, the length of time that they've been at the club, they're so ingrained in everything about the club, I think it's almost seen as a mini-national team in that sense by them. No, I can, I can understand that. I can understand that. And, and Juventus are coming up to a point in time now where they're going to need to to replace a large portion of that first team. So for me, this is a bit of a crossroads for Juventus. Are they going to go down the road and replace almost like for like? Or are they potentially going to go down, shall we say, a more modern road and bring through players that could be the next uh, a proper generation for Juventus, a team that could be around for a decade? Well, how do you think they're going to manage that? I don't know. I think it's going to be extremely interesting to see. I think that, as you say, that there are players like Buffon, Barzagli, Chiellini, Marchisi is not young anymore. Um, you, you can name another two or three around the squad, I would think. Even Gonzalo Higuain, he's touching 30, 31 now, I believe. Um, these players are getting get to the stage where they're going to have to be replaced at first-team level. How they go about that is going to be interesting to see over the next three or four years. I think that it will be staggered over more than one season. They won't do it wholesale. But you can already see moves in the fact that they've been so so adamantly targeting Emery Chan of Liverpool, who's coming up on that contract release that Juventus love to exploit. They, mm. He's coming up to a free transfer at the end of this season. And if he doesn't agree a deal to stay at Liverpool, I would think that Juventus will be his most likely destination. Now, he's a player, normally they do this when a player hits the latter stages of his career. Because of Emery Chan's contract situation, he's hitting possibly freedom of contract when he's in his mid twenties, which gives Juventus a little bit of flexibility in terms of the age profile of their squad. He's somebody that they can sign up who will perhaps be that cornerstone of the, the side over the next five to six years, which would be extremely positive for Juventus. I think the harder job they're gonna have is replacing the defenders that they're gonna lose. It's not as we've already touched upon, it's not so much technical or tactical ability that you're talking about here. The likes of Buffon and Chiellini are are leaders in the squad. Mm. And that's something that I think can't be can't be underestimated by, by us looking in from the outside. I think fulfilling those roles amongst the squad will and replacing them will be extremely difficult. Plus finding players who have the quality to come in and, and slot into Serie A football at the level Juventus expect. I think that we will see them recruit. I do think they'll go in the transfer market to an extent. But I also think that we might see one or two of these players that they've had out on, on loan at other teams. I think we might see them get a chance too. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how they knit all that together. And which players who are currently out on loan do you think could be the ones that are being earmarked to, to lead the next generation? I think the ones who we've already talked about who are at Atalanta, I think Kaidara, uh, a central defender who's looking extremely promising. Um, he's, he's still raw, but... He's a player like they, they already have a young defender on their books in the first team, Daniel Rugani. Rugani is somebody who's been highly rated by Juventus for a long time, but he's never quite made that transition into a full-time first team player, given that Barzagli, Benatia, Chiellini, Bonucci until last season kind of blocked his pathway. I think we'll see him move back in and we'll see Kaidara come up. I think the two of those together will become first team squad members on a permanent basis. I think Spinazzola, who's the attacking left-back, he, he actually almost went on strike at the start of this season because he's only halfway through a two-year loan at Atalanta. And Juventus had tried to to recall the player, even though there's no, there's no recall in his contract clause. So Atalanta were perfectly within their rights to say, no, he's staying with us. And at the start of this season, Juventus tried to recall him and Atalanta refused and Spinazzola wasn't best pleased. He perhaps saw that as being his chance to make an impact to the first team for Juventus. I think he will come in and do well. I think the difficulty will be in goal where obviously with Buffon stepping down we've got Chesney, the ex-Arsenal goalkeeper and Roma goalkeeper. He's next in line and he has looked good in times when he's played this season but whether he has that level of consistency to do it for a whole season remains to be seen. I think I'm not being overly critical when I sort of think that if Juventus are going to hang their hat on Chesney being the ultimate replacement for Buffon, then Juventus could be heading into a slightly less successful period. 
of their of their history but i mean but in all seriousness and that said slightly tongue-in-cheek the the names that these players are going to have to come in and replace these are big boots to fill i mean it took i mean if you go back again yet again showing showing where we grew up sort of like when arsenal when wenger first took over at arsenal and he had that bedrock of seamen and the back four to, to eventually have to replace it took him time then to replace it with the Invincibles back four and since then there's been no decent Arsenal sort of back four put into place it's not easy for these players to come in we can say oh they're just not up to scratch they're not mentally strong enough they're not this they're not that they're bad recruits but when it comes down to it the history that they're going to have to replace that is a huge weight on some of these players shoulders and you're not going to know whether they can do it until they're actually trying to do it no, exactly, and I think that's why they'll they'll try to transition over two or three seasons. <clears throat> I think to do it wholesale, I think would be would be almost too much for the squad to to handle. And certainly, the uh, if you're taking new players in just all in one group, it can be beneficial to a point that those new players bed in with one another very quickly. But at the same time, it can cause a lot of unrest amongst the squad as a whole. So I think we'll see Buffon replaced this season. I think we'll see Rugani and Kaidara move into the central defence and kind of spell time in there. And then I think we'll see Chiellini phased out over the next two seasons. So Juventus do have time, but certainly if you're looking to compete at the top of Italian football at the latter stages of the Champions League as they are, I think it becomes very difficult to to manage this kind of transition smoothly. There, there are definitely going to be problems ahead. No, without, without a doubt. And there's got to be an argument there for the likes of, of Buffon and Chiellini when when their time finally comes to be to be kept around the club for for time as well, just to, just to help the new the new players settle in and pass on their wisdom and experience. Well, what do you think about that as a concept? That's something that Juventus do very well. <clears throat> if you look at, I believe that Pavel Nedved the ex-Czech Republic um, attacker mm. who played for a long time for Juventus. He's involved with the club at quite a high level. I think a lot of Italian clubs are, are good at keeping their ex-players around. I don't think we'll see them just hang around the club kind of as ex-players. I think there may be coaching roles specifically for the likes of Buffon, who obviously has that character and that level of experience that you lo- really look to pass on to young players. But I guess then you, you also have the problem that these new players are coming in and the difficulty of coming in under the shadow of the former players, it, it, it can be counterproductive to an extent. Sometimes you're better off just having a, a clean break, but I would certainly like to see them keep Buffon, keep Chiellini around almost as, I don't know, ambassadors for the club. Yeah, definitely. It was a, there was a famous old story from way back in the day with Liverpool when, when Bill Shankly uh, retired and then regretted his decision almost instantly and, and was hanging around Melwood for a little bit too much for, for Bob Paisley's liking in the end. Because again, just having the shadow of the former boss, for example, so yeah, it could be the same right. with uh, with Buffon, it can be, can be counterproductive. But, uh, but yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how, how Juventus sort of managed the transition into, into the next period. So, Lee, that's uh, that's the end of today's podcast. So, thanks ever so much once again for for passing on all your all your insight on on those subjects. Um, if anybody wants to find you on social media, where do they have to go? You can find me on Twitter at FM Analysis, and feel free to get in touch with any questions or any comments that you have or feedback about the podcast. Definitely, and also, guys, please do send over anything that you'd like us to talk about over over the coming weeks. Otherwise, as we've already touched on, it might just become Lee's personal vehicle to talk about Napoli, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to be we'll have to be careful with that. But you can follow the uh, the website on Twitter as well at ESDF Analysis. Obviously, the website is www.esdfanalysis.com, and on there you can find all kinds of analysis through player profiles recruitment analysis manager analysis and obviously match analysis of the uh, of some of the most recent big matches that, that have occurred uh, if you want to get in touch with me and if you want to uh, task me with any form of analysis which as ever i will pass on to lee it's at chris darwin fmg and of course this has been an fmg production thanks ever so much for listening we'll be back next week 